You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. stay in here as always, but I promise you'll have way more fun back there. Um, welcome to Redemption. I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you head to redemptionhou.com slash today, we've got a whole bunch of stuff on there for you, including today's text. You can grab the Bibles that are in front of you in the seats, or you can jump on your phone uh, and check that out. There's also a list of just some of the different things that are going on in the life of redemption right now. We've got a baby dedication coming up. So if you've got a baby and you want to be a part of that, there's some information there for you. We have what in my mind is like a really important and helpful class coming up. Registration's open for that. So you can go check that out. Like there's just like, if you want to know what's going on uh, without me having to stand up here and ramble on about it for eight minutes, um, go check that out. Also, if you're new here, you click the I'm new button, uh, there'll be a form for you to fill out. You can let us know that you're here. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to hear your name, hear your story, really connect with you, give you some space to ask us questions and learn some more about us. Uh, you can find all of that there on the link that, yeah, is behind me. Um, after the sermon, we're going to sing a few more songs. We'll gather around the table of Jesus and participate in communion. And then we're going to be dismissed to eat and to play and to celebrate like a new season of life. As we enter into the fall, so much of our rhythms and routines begin to kind of change and solidify in some really helpful ways. And so we feel like that's worth celebrating. It's a good excuse to have a party. It's a good excuse to connect with each other and just enjoy. I want to encourage you to like actually really enter into and be present um, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour and a half, however long you decide to hang out and stay. We've got tons of drinks. We'll have tons of food. We've got bounce houses for the kids. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. But more than that, like, allow yourself to be. Allow yourself to let the worries of the week behind you and the worries of the week ahead of you kind of just disappear for just a few minutes and just enjoy Enjoy old friends and maybe some new friends, and more than anything, enjoy the communion of the Holy Spirit that is with us as we gather and are eating and are drinking and are playing. Um, some really practical directions. If you want some pizza, uh, when we end, go to the doors on the left, and that's where all the pizza will be, and it'll kind of keep us uh, organized and all that good stuff. We'll funnel you that way um, when we need to, but... There's no good segue here, so I'm just going to jump right into um, Fyodor Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov. So at, at the center of this like massive tome of one of 
the world's great pieces of literature, there is this story of the Grand Inquisitor. And, and the larger story is of these brothers that have lost a father and they're kind of grappling with some of that. In the middle of this story, one brother is uh, harassing and going after a younger brother. The, the older brother's an atheist, and the younger brother is like this new monk. He's brand new into the, the monastery and into monkhood. And the older atheist is basically like trying to de, like tear apart his faith. And, and the, the three or so chapters of the Grand Inquisitor is a beautiful depiction of like, why be an atheist? <laughs> like there's some really good arguments in there. And I won't go into all the details, but essentially the story is, hey, uh, there's this vision that I've had. This is the older atheist brother talking. And the vision is this, that Jesus goes into a city in Spain during the Spanish Inquisition. And as the, the bodies of heretics are still smoldering over uh, on the ground in the city, Jesus quietly and subtly enters the city. Incognito. And stillness. And the people almost immediately recognize him. And like, hey, aren't you Jesus? And they begin to demand, like, hey, will you do these miracles? And so Jesus does these miracles, and it, it all culminates in Jesus, um, who the people have kind of ushered him towards the big cathedral at the center of the city. And there, there's a, uh, as this procession of Jesus encounters this procession of a funeral of a little girl, the mother weeping looks to Jesus, and Jesus says, little girl, get up. It's the only time Jesus actually says anything in the entire narrative. And the little girl rises from the dead, and then all of a sudden, the grand inquisitor, the bishop grand inquisitor, like the representation of the institution of the church, shows up, and he points to Jesus, and he says, arrest him. And the same people that had recognized Jesus and sought Jesus and were amazed that Jesus had just resurrected this little girl from the dead immediately in like a stupor turn and they grab Jesus and they hand him over to the Grand Inquisitor. And the Grand Inquisitor then puts Jesus on trial. And his whole thing is essentially this. We don't need you. The church doesn't need you. And in fact, you told us how to live the wrong type of life. There's another one who has some power. There's another one who can actually make us happy. There's another one who makes us really effective at building an empire. And he begins to describe how they've given up uh, the way of Jesus in the name of Jesus and have actually begun following the devil to build the empire of the church. And his conclusion at the end of all of this, he looks Jesus in the eyes and he says, and so for this, tomorrow we will burn you at the stake as a heretic because we no longer need Jesus. We will build our empire in your name by the power of the devil. Earlier this week, um, it's been a trying week for me and I'll, I'll share a little bit about this. I don't want to dump a ton of it on there, but I just had some like really heavy conversations this week. One of which was out of the blue, a, a Jewish friend of mine messaged me, and I haven't talked to her in years. And so I knew, like, oh, this is weird. She's reaching out. This is strange. Um, we then have a phone, com a phone conversation, and 
she shares, I won't give you any of the details, but she shares, I've just been through the worst possible thing I could have ever imagined. It's so terrifying and so terrible. I, I couldn't even imagine that it would have ever happened. And yet here I am, my life is in shambles. And so as she's like telling this like heart-wrenching, horrible story, you know, I have no practical advice I can give her. And I'm also like, wait, you're Jewish. You know, I'm a pastor. Like, uh, why are you asking me? But this is in my head. I, of course, don't say that to her. <laughs> and then she, she gets to it. And she says, I'm just, everything is in shambles, and I don't know what to do, and I just, I'm so angry at God. How could he let this happen? And I've known enough Christians in my life that there's something about y'all. When, when stuff like this happens, y'all seem to be able to, like, turn to your faith instead of turning away from your faith. Like, what, what is that? What's, what am I missing? And I corrected her a little bit, and was like, uh, hold on. <laughs> I get that that might be what appears to be happening, but can I just say that like we all go through stuff like this. It's a very unpleasant part of being human. It's a very unpleasant part of faith. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is uh, something that we encouraged us to all pray just a couple of weeks ago. And so I don't want to gloss over any of that. And I also don't want to lean into any sort of toxic positivity that we think, oh, we're Christians. And so now everything's going to be good and better and fine because we're Christians. And so I, I wanted to lean away from that, but this morning, uh, basically, this sermon is for her. Because I think there is something, because essentially what she was asking me, and she didn't say it in these words, and she didn't really understand what she was asking, but why is it when all hell is breaking loose, when the world is burning down around you, when your faith is hanging by a thread, you Christians sing? Why do you sing? What is there worth singing about? You have this hope that seems to well up from inside you when, when nothing makes sense. Why are you singing? And I think her story is so enigmatic of everything that so many of us have faced, regardless of whether it's been on the level that she's dealing with right now or on a much less, to a much lesser degree, like it feels like the world is on fire. And a lot of the institutions and the places that we sought refuge in have, in many cases, best case scenario, let us down. Worst case scenario, have abused us, torn us up, chewed us up, and spit us out in the name of Jesus. And we're left sitting here in our doubts and our crisis of faith, and we're going, where do I go? Why should I sing? We've had hope ripped from our hands or maybe we've been beaten down so often that we are now in the place where we scoff at the idea of it. Pfft, hope. That's for the naive. What I want to suggest to you today is I want us to look at the question, is there anything worth singing about? And we're going to look at this question in a variety of different ways, basically for the next year. We're entering into our year of hope, and we're going to ask ourselves over and over and over again, why do we sing? Right? And we might not use that language, but we're going to ask ourselves, what is our hope? Is there anything worth singing, it, singing about? And, and this morning, what I want to offer you is a resounding yes. 
that I know the world is on fire. I know your faith is hanging by a thread. I know it feels like God doesn't care about you, but there is absolutely something worth singing about. There is real hope. <coughs> Excuse me. My daughter has been sick for like six months. <laughs> Not actually. Okay, so yeah, six months is a long time. You should get that checked out. Um, so I've got some congestion. It's not COVID. Um, I don't know that anyone would care anymore if it was, but yeah. So this series that we're entering into is a particularly important one. As we go into this year of hope, we're going to like acknowledge the fact that we live in a wasteland. Right? We, we are not living in Disney World. Uh, the world is a rough and difficult place. And is there anywhere we can turn, any, any place we can go to to find like nourishment, find like refreshment for our soul? And, and we're going to actually look as like spiritual pilgrims wandering through the desert. We're going to see, can we find anywhere, any spring, any wellspring that can sustain us? And we're going to look at the wellsprings that the church for over 2,000 years, regardless of what continent they were on, regardless of whether they were super wealthy or super impoverished, whether they were like uh, the, the kings of the world or whether they were like running and fleeing in persecution for 2,000 years, they've come back to these wellsprings over and over and over again saying, here, look, I found water. I found life. Drink deeply from these wells and be sustained. But before we can do that in the next eight weeks, we need to look at the wellspring that is the spring for the wellsprings. We need to look at the wellspring that sustains us. So today, uh, maybe it's a little audacious, but my sermon is the only thing that matters. <laughs> right, I'm going to get an email. Well, actually, like, uh, okay. The only thing that matters is this spring that sustains all other springs, this goodness that sustains all other goodness, this beauty that all other beauty is found in. But it's not an idea, it's not new knowledge, it's not some religion or morality, right? And I think this is so much of what my friend was looking for. You know something that I don't know. No, sweet friend, I know someone that you don't know. Spring of life is not an idea, it's not a theology, it's not a religion, it's a person. It's not knowledge about a person, it's intimacy with a person. The only thing that matters, the thing that matters is Jesus. And we can have arguments all day long about everything else that's periphery, and we can talk about women in ministry, and we can talk about LGBT stuff, and we can talk about predestination, and we can talk about this or that, and which political party, blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, if we're not talking about Jesus, what are we doing? We're wasting our time. We're wasting our breath. And so today, we ask the question, who is Jesus? And I want to look to the scriptures these ancient texts, and we're going to look at this ancient hymn, and I want us to hear them in a way that maybe can sustain us, that maybe can bolster that thread of faith that we're clinging to, that maybe can, can quench just a little bit of the parched soul that we have as we've been wandering through this wasteland. And I'm going to break this up into two pieces here. The first, we're going to look at the authority of Jesus, which sounds super like, oh man, where is this guy about to go? But roll with me, okay? Okay. 
Right? We, we, we need Jesus to have the authority that he does. But then the second part we're going to see is the reason why this is such good news is because Jesus is profoundly and utterly breathtaking. So we'll look at the, the authority of Jesus, and then we're going to look at the beauty of Jesus in this text. And so we turn to this ancient hymn in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We could spend the next eight weeks just talking about this text and there's a time and a place for that. We're not going to do, this, do that this morning. I'm not going to sit here and parse out all of the different things that we could parse out. And there are a ton here. But this morning, I want us to see, like, what were these people singing about? Okay, so first of all, this is a hymn that Paul, in this letter to the church in Colossians, drops this hymn uh, in the middle of it. And so that means that this hymn is something that these churches would have been singing. So in many ways, they predate much of the New Testament. Like these are things that they're singing about and confessing about who Jesus is and is such beautiful and rich language. Verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. And so the first big thing that we see here is that God has made God's self known in Jesus. That God has not left us hanging out to dry. God has revealed God's self to us in Jesus. And so this language, the visible image of an invisible God, this is not just like, oh yeah, he kind of resembles him a little bit. This is a particular language. This is different from like, I don't know, someone's face is on a coin and that's the image of the person. This is different from that. This is the physical manifestation of the divine. We know God because we've seen Jesus. And the really good news here is we can flip this. And we could say, wait, 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 wait. The God that we ought to know and be in relationship is like Jesus. Like whatever I think about God, I have to run through the filter of Jesus because Jesus is the fullest and clearest depiction of God. Verse 16, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. And so there's some language here that says, hey, look, um, God created everything and he created everything through Jesus. And this sounds like, I don't know, like an artist creates a picture with like a paintbrush and Jesus is the paintbrush. That's not what this means. This is not like an instrumentality thing. The, the language here is that the rich involvement of Jesus in the act of creation. And so that anything and everything that exists, exists because Jesus has created it. And there is real like, oh, there's real like authority here. He is the source of all things, all the rulers and the powers and the authorities, both the ones that we can see and the ones that we can't see. And so uh, a few weeks ago, we all got to see images from the James Webb telescope, these high resolution infrared photos of the universe. And I think most of us saw these and were like, holy cow. Like we're like looking at the tip of the iceberg of what exists beyond us that we can't even see and don't even know about. And what Colossians is saying is not only is there one who sees that, there is one who dreamed it up, who imagined it up, who whisked it all together to make this beautiful thing that we're now like just now catching up with the technology that we can even like put our eyes on it. 
is the source of all things beautiful and all things good. And his fingerprints are on all of creation. And his fingerprints are on you and on me. There's this little phrase at the end there, um, the end of verse 16, for him. And right, these in Greek, these little prepositions are like dramatic, okay? Uh, they're like whole chapters in grammar textbooks. Jordan's laughing because she teaches Greek now. God bless you. <laughs> um, if you have questions about this preposition, she can talk to you for hours, I'm sure, about it. But it's like literally, it's our English word to, like T-O, or it's maybe translated for, F-O-R, and you're like, it's just a simple preposition, what's the big deal? But like there's this whole thing that's packed into this, and I'm not going to get into it, but essentially what this is saying is that all of creation's end is in Jesus. It exists for him. And not in like a possessive way, like you're mine, but no, 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 it's the opposite that all of creation turns to see its creator and it is nourished by it, that it's delighted in it, that it is more of what it's supposed to be because it sees it, is in union with it. You'll never think of the word for in the same way ever again. He's the end of creation, not the cessation of it, but the point of it. You and I were made for Jesus. And then lastly, verse 17 of this first section, he existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together, current, present tense, ongoing action. You and I are drawing our every breath because Jesus is sustaining us right now in this moment. Our heart beats because of the creator of the cosmos is causing us to live and to breathe and to have our being. And so the second big point I want to make here is that he is the fount. He is the spring. He is the source. He is the wellspring of all things. Right? And I know there's a conversation to be had here about evil, and we will get to that in our conversation about all of this stuff. And we've looked at evil enough, right? Um, we've been looking at it for a number of years and encountering it for a number of years. Let's, for a moment, let's put that to the side and let's acknowledge that everything that's good and beautiful and life-giving is sourced in Jesus. He is the fount, and all things flow from him, and all things are made and exist in him, and all things find their source and life and beauty because of him. He is the point. What's the meaning of life? It's Jesus. So no matter what we believe, we have to grapple with this, right? Whether you're coming in here as like, I don't know, you're fully rooted in whatever religious tradition, whether you're an atheist or an agnostic or like, I don't even know what I am. I'm just like a whatever. I'm just here for beer and pizza, dude. Like, right? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, we have to grapple with this. What do we do with Jesus? Like he's, he's forcing our hand here. You can't just say, ah, I said some great stuff. It's cool. But I don't just mean like as a theory or an idea. Like, no, 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 no. You have to wrestle with the person. We, we can't get around that. I want to let go of Christianity so much. I, I've experienced uh, bigotry and hatred and racism and like hate and like institutional stuff that has just destroyed me. Yes, but what about Jesus? 
right? And, and absolutely flee from those toxic things. Run away as fast as you can, but don't let go on the life-sustaining nourishment of Jesus. I want to let you know that you can, in fact, trust him, that this is actually a good thing. Like, Jesus having the authority, and in spite of all of the hardships, um, why should I trust Jesus? Because he's beautiful. And I want us to take a moment to look at the beauty of Jesus. Verse 18. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. So uh, 15 through 17, we're like, Christ is the one who sustains all things. He's the create, creator. Uh, 17, or sorry, yeah, 18 through 20 is, and Christ is also the sustainer of salvation, or however, whatever language you want to use there. So Christ is the head of the church. Christ is not the church. The woundings of the church should not be uh, uh, like conflated into the woundings of Christ. The things that terrible men and women do in the name of Jesus should not be like somehow misunderstood as what Jesus is doing to us. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning. He is supreme over all who rise from the dead. Uh, right, so Jesus actually rose from the dead. Jesus will actually return and bring us back from the dead. Again, this is one of our conversations we'll have in a couple of weeks, but it's pretty like, whoa, what, huh? So that he is first in everything. He is preeminent. Verse 18, or sorry, verse 19, for God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Through Jesus, God has reconciled everything to Jesus, right? The himself there is amb ambiguous in the New Living Translation, which is what we've got on the screen. Other translations make this more clear. The himself is not a reference to God. It's a reference to Jesus. Even though they're the same being, not the same person, uh, we'll have coffee. So through God, or sorry, through Jesus, God reconciles everything to Jesus, and he makes peace with everything in heaven and on earth. He makes peace with everything in heaven and on earth. And I think sometimes we hear this, this language of reconciliation, this language of peace, and what we hear is, right, because we've grown up in some, uh, some churches that have taught us this, I've done some bad things, and I'm going to get some of those bad things excused, and now I've got like a clean slate, and it's almost like a ledger. Right, it's a spreadsheet. Here's the list of all the things I've done wrong, and now I don't have this list anymore. Jesus has like deleted it. Uh, and it's not that that's not true. It's that that is like a fraction of what is going on, and it's not at all what Colossians is describing. The reconciliation here is not, hey, you owe God some money. Right, the reconciliation is not, hey, you're in debt. The reconciliation here is not a spreadsheet. It is a relationship. When Jesus talks about the reconciliation he is offering, he tells a story of a son who looks at his father and says, I wish you were dead so I could have all your stuff. And the father says, take it. Go. Do what you want. Be free. Be happy. Pursue whatever it is that you want. So the son goes and he takes all the stuff and he just enjoys it and delights in it and bathes in it. It's like, woohoo, this is everything my heart has ever wanted. I'm finally content. I'm finally free. And then before he knows it, he looks around and the stuff is gone. And he's far, far away from his father. And he's living in dirt and filth and refuse. 
And he has this idea, oh my gosh, I just have to get back to the house of my father. I just have to get back there because even like the slaves have it better than me. Even the slaves like have a better name than I do right now. I just have to go back and maybe, just maybe, he'll like accept me as like one of the lowliest servants in his house. And so he comes back to the father's house and when the father sees him a long, long, long ways away, he runs in shame. He discards any like, I don't know, formality of his position and his fatherhood and his estate. And he says, no, 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 that's my son. And he pursues him. And when he sees him, he doesn't let him say a word. He just embraces him. And he kisses him on the mouth. And he says, my son, you're home. My son, you're home. Not my slave, not my servant, not, well, should have listened to pops, not, I told you. Not, hey, this is great, but you owe me. My son is home. Reconciliation is to Christ, and it is far more than like some sort of spreadsheet data, whatever. It is far more than like legal language. It is real, actual reconciliation. There is real peace and wholeness here. And we will only ever find our goodness, beauty, and wholeness in Christ. It is where reconciliation lies in Christ. The thing that our soul is looking for and longing for is found in Christ. And so if this hymn is true, then Jesus is everything. He is both uh, the authority over all things, and he is also the way that we can have like wholeness and life again. And more than this, he is our everything. And so the Grand Inquisitor ends as the Grand Inquisitor tells Jesus, looks in the eyes, and kind of delightfully says, tomorrow we're burning you at the stake as a heretic because we don't need you anymore. And Jesus looks him in the eyes, right, silent through the whole thing, and gently and compassionately kisses him on his cold, bloodless lips. And the Grand Inquisitor tells him, go. Get out of the city. And he lets him go. And he says that his heart burned from that kiss for the rest of his life. This is what it means to encounter Jesus. Right, we can know about Jesus. We can talk about theology. We can argue about the Bible or whatever. But that is very, very different than encountering the Jesus of the Bible, than encountering the, the Jesus that is the creator and sustainer of all things. We do not get to get let off the hook here. And I want to explain to you why this means so much to me. Um, I shared a little bit. Of, this has just been a hard week. Um, nothing crazy. I'm good. I'm fine. Um, I've, I've, I'm a mess, y'all. Um, and if you're new here, welcome to Redemption. Um, like we've always very clearly said, hey, we're your pastors. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And if you need me to be perfect, well, you're going to be very disappointed. Um, my job is not to be perfect. My job is not even to be holier than you. My job is to point to the one who is perfect. And I'm a mess, y'all. This week alone, I've been impatient and unkind and ungracious. 
I've been convicted to my very soul that like, ah, I, I know I need you, but I, I tend to like rely on myself in really unhealthy and unhelpful ways. And I've been emotionally depleted and it's just been a hard week. But he rushes towards me and he embraces me and he kisses me on my lips, even my cold, bloodless lips. And he says, my son, you're home. You're home. I've seen him, right? Not with my eyes. I've encountered him. Like just this week alone, like his presence has caused me to weep tears of joy in the midst of one of the hardest weeks that I, I can remember. I've met God. This is what it means to encounter Jesus. This is what it means when Jesus is, is like a person and not just an idea. Jesus comes to us and he meets us. And in this, we meet the God of love. We meet the person of Jesus. And I want to invite you to taste and see. Not just to talk about Jesus. Not just to think thoughts about Jesus. I want to invite you to allow Jesus to kiss you to set your heart on fire the way that he set mine on fire. You too in the midst of this wasteland can be captivated by the kiss of beauty, by the kiss of love himself. And in his embrace, in his embrace you'll find refreshment and nourishment and some shelter from this wasteland. And so filled with hope and captivated by beauty and wooed by the love of my soul's delight, I sing. I want you to sing with me. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, you are everything and I don't have all the answers but I know you've assured me that you're here, you're with me and you're with us, that you love me and that you love us, that you're for me and that you're for us. And I cling to that. I, I cling to your robes and I beg you, Jesus, don't abandon me, don't leave me. I'm so desperately in need of you. Will you prick our hearts? Will you greet us with your kiss of love? Will you set our hearts on fire with your presence? In this moment, as we sing, will you be with us? Will you delight us? Will we begin to actually believe that you are everything? It's in your name that we sing. It's in your name that we are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.